this is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I'm talking to Roger Angel today uh, about no particular book, but about literary history, if that's all right with you. That's fine with me. We'll see. <laughs> you have... I'm you, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have... I love, I love talking to you because you I know mean, more than way. just about anybody else I know about... Uh, books in American literature. Let's say I've forgotten more than anybody. All right, all right. But you've been writing longer than anyone I know. Let's put it that way. Okay. And reading probably too. Um, So I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, The New Yorker and your involvement there because it was part of your family, part of your growing up. what would you, what's the, I, and I know you wrote about memorizing the cartoons. I'll car- say that again. You, you wrote about memorizing the cartoons. Of- well, I didn't try to. I was, I grew up in the New Yorker because my mother was a, uh, I was an editor with the New Yorker almost from the beginning. She came, we'd been going a couple of months and she joined as, a, as a, an editor and then became a fiction editor and then was a highly significant, deeply involved in the art and the poetry. So she was, a major figure there from the beginning. I was quite young. My mother and father were divorced. Uh, my mother had married E.B. White, and my father had custody of me and my sister most of the time. So when I was with my mother and stepfather, which was a lot of the time, I paid close attention to their world. Uh, I was a very smart kid. I read everything from an early age, and I avidly read The New Yorker every week and listened to The New Yorker talk. And, endless talk between mother and Andy White about Harold Ross, who became like an extra figure at the breakfast table, and I paid attention. And uh, I looked through the cartoons every week. I didn't understand a bunch of them, but I looked at them. And about six or seven years later, in the early 30s, I said, it was up in Maine, in Brooklyn, Maine, where we were in the summer where my parents lived, and... uh, I said, I remember every cartoon in the New Yorker. And they said, come on. So I said, come. no, no, really, I do. And so they get out some bound copies, some old copies, and looked through, and I remembered all the captions. So it's possible I didn't remember them all. And some were totally mysterious. I remember a famous Helen Hokinson drawing of an American dowager in Paris whispering to a book dealer, Avez-vous Ulysses? Um, and you didn't know what Ulysses know was. <laughs> so, but do you feel like, um, I mean, I was really curious about your ability to write about visual um, scenes and, mem- and and understand them. And I, about you know, visual? Well, you know, you write about the cartoons and you write about mm-hmm. um, things you've seen. And I think that's mm-hmm. an important part of mm-hmm. writing. Well, I think, as I've said about some other people over the years, I think I'm a good noticer. And uh, particularly in baseball, because there's a whole lot of time in baseball to pay attention, to see what's going on, and to see not just the obvious plays or who is where, but uh, little characteristics, how people run, how they move, uh, how a pitcher pitches. Uh, And I used to take endless notes. That's, what I, was, notebooks that's what I was going to ask you about. Well, Did you I take had notes? Those, yeah. Those, uh, I can't remember the name right now. It'll come back to me. But there's a particular kind of note. I later, later discovered that David Remnick used these all his career. 
there's a college uh, college notebook with lines and space, and I used to fill up those books uh, with notes, most of which I didn't use because I didn't know where down the line I would want to refer back to them, or sometimes something something happens that connected with something I'd seen at the moment. And uh, yes, sir. I'll be in the other room if you want me to yell for me, and I can. Roger. Do you want me to hand you something like uh, I've got like an half an can, apple turnover? You can stay inside and correct me also if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I I was actually going to interject that you Roger may. is intensely visual and um, one of one of the three people in my life I like to go to museums with because he's such a great we're very similar just, he's just well I thought no I've noticed but you notice that in in his writing that the ability to uh, comprehend and explain what you see that's a very unusual um, talent I would say well, I remember these notebooks because I was up in Fenway Park one day and there's an old, wonderful old Boston, um, Boston Herald, but I can't remember who he wrote for it, named Cliff, Cliff Keane, K-E-A-M-E, and uh, who was a local guy. And he would see me filling out these notebooks. And in those days, uh, sports writers wrote their copy on typewriters that sit, seated in the press rows. And each piece of paper was taken out and given to a... I mean, they would write on the fly. Yeah, was, was taken and given to a messenger who took it to the other end of the press box and a telegrapher. Right. And each piece of paper was called a take. It was taken. And Cliff would see me taking all these notes. And he would say, how many takes today, Raj? <laughs> 20, 30, three takes? Hey, Raj, look at all the takes. And I didn't know what a take was, but it was just a piece of paper. <laughs> Wait, was he making fun of you? No, he was yeah. in a friendly way. He was making yeah. fun of me. Yeah. But when you... One when, of the funniest guys around anywhere for years. <laughs> yeah. When you took those, when you took notes, and would you go back to them and use them sure, as... Sure, sure. I have notebooks that are mostly in the Hall of Fame, but I have notebooks filled up, filled up yeah. with, with uh, not just what happens to inning by inning, but with other observations, and often with little drawings uh, to what I mean, batting stance looks like, what they're... Shoulders look right. Roger's actually a very good artist too. So he has little, <clears throat> little drawings of, of odd things that he's noticed in a player or a stance. Or it's, it's interesting. Right. You know what it reminded me of? There's a book I love, which is out of print. A lot of There's a book I love that's out of print. It was written in 1952 or 53. Um, Red Smith. And Mark Simont, who was a fantastic yeah, artist. Smith, Mark Simont, the illustrator. Yeah, yeah they, he, they I did, have that book. Right? You know, the baseball book where they yeah. went to, they watched the New York Giants yeah. for uh, a season. Yes, and I then, have that book. Yeah. yeah, it's a wonderful book. Yeah. Well, Red Smith was one of my idols. A wonderful writer, and everybody's idol is a writer. a lighthearted, beautiful writer. He wrote every day, uh, six days a week. For the Herald Tribune, and he uh, got older, and they cut him down to four days, and he could hardly stand. <laughs> he could hardly stand. Right, because he wanted to write. Yeah, and uh, he was an alcoholic, and his hands shook as he uh, at, at his place. But uh, he was a fabulous, fabulous, wonderful guy, lighthearted, and but uh, and wrote wrote lightly, but his content was was brilliant, and. Uh, 
I certainly took him as a model and read him intensely. So do you think for you the um the the model, do you yeah. think for you the model writers were journalists? Well, I think my main model as a writer was my stepfather because he was such a brilliant stylist and and so unserious, so unheavy, uh, wrote lightly and clearly, and he was I read him every day and but I don't think I don't think I ended up writing like him. No, not at all. But you could see the inspiration. Well, I don't know if I was inspired. This all this this. I mean, I read. I was an intense reader as a young man. Uh, a little story that's just come up. I was about my mother's house was always full of books because she reviewed first children's books for the New Yorker, and, and the house was full of new books and. One summer, there was a book there called The Werewolf of Paris by Guy Andor, E-N-D-O-R. And uh, I, Werewolf of Paris, I picked this up and read it. And it turned out to be intensely sexual and, and very, very, very vividly sexual all the way through. How old were you? 12. <laughs> and, uh, Perfect age. Later in that summer, later that summer, my mother picked the book up and she said, Roger, you've been reading this. She was, uh, she was shocked. And, uh, you but, should have uh, I went to a school that had some bright kids in it, and we read, we read a lot. And uh, so, you know, I was a reader and a noticer. Uh, how, by, and I by the way, kid, I was a kid writer. And uh, how was the Werewolf of Paris? Was it any good? It was great. The thing is, it's just been reissued in oh. paperback. Huh. It's just now been reissued in paperback. And I mentioned this to a couple. I'm not sure who it is, but it's. Anyway. I mentioned it, and a couple of friends of mine went and bought it and said, "Wow, what a book!" <laughs> <laughs> and this is a made-up man, Guy Endor. His name is something else. So he wrote under he wrote a screenplay for the story of G.I. Joe, and he was, he was a screenwriter. Wow. <laughs> See, this is. A, I, I like talking to you because you have, you know, things that nobody else knows. Well, I'm not doing what any longer. <laughs> um, well, you know, one of the th I was sort of interested in um, thinking about the New Yorker. Going back to that, yeah. um, one of the reasons that I initially reached out to talk to you was about this writer that I've been interested in, named Robert Coates. Yeah. And yes. I know you've told me everything you know about yeah. Coates, but it, I also wondered um, about when you were that age and you were sort of um, living amongst the people who later became famous, then were just, they were just doing what they were doing. Well, yeah, there was Andy's friends, including Jim Thurber, and he played ping pong at the, the Andy White at a ping pong table at their apartment at, um, on 8th Street, and Thurber would be there lunging around and other young people from the New Yorker. It was just an interesting milieu. But, uh, you were, they were just young people around around right. my around my family. And so Robert Coates was at that time one of the er also one of the early writers for the New Yorker. I know he was writing about art. art right. And, uh, he was the art critic initially, yeah. um, and he invented the word abstract expression. That's right. right. Yeah. Yes. Right. It, in some well, ways, I, I remember also reading his. Uh, his novels, I think he wrote a novel, a novel called The Eater of Darkness, is that right? His first one, which was an experimental Dada novel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from He wrote it in 1922 or 1923 when he was in Paris. 
Well, yeah. I've read that fairly early on. Yeah, it's an interesting book. Um, and he wrote, kept on writing novels, but yeah. um, seems to have disappeared um, from the literary scene. That's true. That's true. He's been forgotten. But uh, I believe the sweet man, red hair, white pink face, very sweet, very sweet. Um, I read a lot of short fiction because this is my mother's main job with as a fiction editor. And so I read the New Yorker fiction, which was fairly lighthearted and then got a lot better. And this writers arrived, like John O'Hara. And, uh, my mind's going blank at the moment. But the Bokoff. No, that was that was late, late, That was in the fifties. So, do 60s. you think early in the like in the twenties? Not the twenties, but in the thirties. It was. It got more serious. There were, there were three pieces of fiction every week, and the two in the front and one in the back. And uh, I read those stories, and Sally Benson, there were a lot of regular contributors, uh, very talented, and very, very small little vignettes, mostly. It was a kind of, they called it a New Yorker story, right. which was a story without an ending. It didn't, there wasn't a punchline that was custom with stories in the Saturday Evening Post, let's say, but it was a different kind of, of topical and uh, social fiction. Right, and that, so the but the New Yorker story idea evolved over years to sure. becoming much more. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, 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 wonderful writer. I mean, Irwin Shaw arrived and before the war, and the whole but Jerome Weidman, uh, a lot of different writers, and deepened deepened the, you know, the medium and uh, changed the American short story. Right, and so do you feel like? When you became the fiction editor, which was, I think, 1956? I didn't become the fiction editor oh. then. It was in about 10 years later. No, okay. they, they, they had a seniority cut in Maxwell, and, and uh, Bob Henderson were laid off, so I suddenly became the senior person. So it was, oh, so you started, but when did you start working there? I moved 19? to the New Yorker from, from Holiday Magazine in 1956. Right. Well, I've been a contributor for a long time. And I first sold a story to the New Yorker when I was in the army, I believe, in a couple of short, short pieces. And uh, I was still stationed in this country writing and uh, continued to send fiction now and then from when I was out in the Pacific. And my first article for the New Yorker was a long piece about a bomber mission from the Marianas to the bombing Iwo Jima before we occupied. And uh, I wrote it for the magazine that I was a managing editor of a GI Air Force weekly called Brief. And then it was such a great story, I decided to try it for the New Yorker. And, uh, that was the first fact piece that I ran. I, I didn't fly the mission, but I interviewed all the people in the hospital. Almost everybody on the the 10 people on the plane survived, which was shot to pieces and falling through the air for 1,500 miles and, and uh, had no brakes and then landed. And co-pilot seriously wounded. The pilot lost his nerve and couldn't fly anymore. And the plane was flown most of the distance by one of the gunners who was a washed yeah. out there, a cadet. Wow. Uh, amazing story. Uh, was it a B-29? B-24. Or B-20, B-24. Oh, a smaller plane. They were yeah. doing round-the-clock bombing of right. Iwo Jima to keep the Japanese fighter planes from intercepting the B-20, the, the plane lines. 
but uh, but I didn't want to come to work at the New Yorker because I didn't want to go into the family business. Right. I, after the war, I first went to work for an experimental, non, not yet published magazine published by Curtis Publishing, Saturday Evening Post people, the biggest publisher of magazines anywhere in Philadelphia. <clears throat> and this was to be a full-scale rival, a weekly rival of, of Life magazine. They were going to start at a high circulation and go right at it. And they hired a bunch of us who had been journalists from around in different places during the war, the young staff. Uh, with a brilliant man named Ted Patrick as the editor who had been in the, the uh, information bureau during the war, a former advertising man. In the meantime, it started holiday as a monthly. So, Oh, so this was a different magazine than this Holiday. Was a, this was the Magazine X, so-called. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. We were young and we worked hard and drank hard and had a lot of, lot of great time to put out uh, two or three dummy issues. But uh, it turned out to be extremely expensive. And so Curtis pulled the plug on Magazine X. But meantime, Holiday was floundering. It wasn't doing well. And they took Ted Patrick and I think four or five of us from Magazine X and moved them down to Holiday. And that was the beginning of my connection there. And Holiday has just been, I noticed someone bought the archives of Holiday and revived it online. Really? Well, so, it's a beautiful magazine. Yeah, it's one of, the, very it was one of the most beautiful magazines ever published. Yeah. Thanks to the art editor, Frank Zachary, who was an intimate friend of mine. And, Wonderful man, my, my best man. When I got married the second time, that, who interviewed Roger two yeah. weeks ago. Roger, I was just saying, there's that woman who's writing a book about Holiday Magazine. Yes, who interviewed going to be a book. going to be a book about the old Holiday. It's yeah. be great. I think she's. And that basically was a magazine that world travel by air had right. just arrived. Right, there were you could fly in the first by prop plane, four hundred prop planes. The Pan Am had. Flights that would go through Gander or Newfoundland and then to Dublin or then Paris and Rome. So people could not, wouldn't take a month, six weeks to go to Europe for the long voyage back and forth. You could do it in two weeks or three weeks. And people from all around the country who were, fat, who were famished for travel for something different because they'd been stuck there during the war or away somewhere, suddenly with a little money you could go and go to Paris or Venice or Barcelona. Or Dublin or wherever, and uh, get back in ten in ten, two weeks. Right, so you would be able to do it in a normal vacation time. And we we were that magazine, and we hired the world's best photographers and the best artists and the, and world famous writers, William Faulkner, uh, James T. Farrell, the uh, Dora Welty people, all sorts of E. B. White to write the text, uh, and. We all tried to try to write text too, because we were, then we would get to travel. <laughs> right. If you could, if you could be a writer, you would get an assignment. Well, the best assignment I ever got for myself was French. Ocean liners were still going. The French line had the best food in the world. It was yeah. a five star, five star cuisine. And I went to Ted Patrick, the editor, one day, and I said, "The food on the French line." And he said, "You bastard! Why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> so I had a two-way trip 
over and back, and I did some work in Paris with other people. And the French line was doing its best every day to bring me whatever they wanted. Because <laughs> they, knew, they <laughs> knew you were a magazine writer. <laughs> also, all the wine you could drink. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They were, no, I, I, had, I was fortunate that I was, I think when I was 13, we came home from Europe on the SS France. Yeah. And they would let 13-year-olds yeah. drink wine. I sailed on the France at one point. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was very nice. I sailed on the France first when I was eight years old. My family, or seven years old. My family still intact went to Europe back. I remember. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, so how long did you, you work for the for a holiday? I worked for them for about 10 years. I was in the New York office. Uh, so I lived up here, and I went down to Philadelphia for Tuesday night and Wednesday night and came back at the end of the day on Thursday. Uh, and I wrote a lot about New York also and other. I did a lot of different reporting. And what, what caused you to... Um what caused you to um, make the switch to the New Yorker then? Well, I was still writing for the New Yorker. I was still writing fiction once in a while for the New Yorker. And uh, I was still reading it and connected with it. My family, my mother and stepfather were still, my mother was still editing it from, involved in editing a magazine, mostly from Maine. Andy White had gone off to write for Harper's and I was still writing comment pages for the New Yorker. So I was still intimately involved. Uh, so when I was hired, it was, I mean, I had, I had done well and my writing was known and I was a New Yorker, an established New Yorker minor figure. So it wasn't uh, as if I was gliding in there because of my parents, although of course they had a vast influence on me, but, uh, I was hired first by Bill Sean to be both a fact editor and a fiction editor, but the fact part. He didn't really, we didn't go there, so I became a fiction editor. My mother had retired, and and I loved this. I was good at it and knew how to edit as well as to write, so uh, I was very lucky. Everything I, I did uh, turned out I had some ability, and I also was allowed, once I began to write about baseball, which wasn't until the 60s, uh, I was allowed to go away and write about baseball. I'd take time off whenever I wanted to. So, and who who was your editor at the? New I Yorker? had a whole, a whole bunch of different editors. First, Gardner Botsford, a great friend of mine, a great editor. Uh, and when he retired, uh, different people. And I've always said it. That and Goldstein was an editor of mine. And everybody needs an editor. Yeah. Well, every I mean. He, even great writers need everybody. Everyone. Everybody. Every yeah. writer needs an editor. But it's also, I think, it's a kind of personal thing to have an editor, a personal thing who, for an editor to understand your work and understand the workings of your mind. Well, the only piece of advice I ever got from William Sean, a great, great, great editor, was the first week I was there as a fiction editor, and he said, "It's no great trick for an editor to take a piece of fiction." and turned into the best story ever written. So the hard thing is to make it the best story this writer wrote in the world. <laughs> so you have to edit yeah. in the style of the right, writer. for that writer, yeah. And I think the key to editing, for me, or for this kind of editing, is to realize how hard 
writing is, how really hard, it's really hard to write well. And I mistrust writers who, who write a lot. I mean, well, there are some who write a lot and write well, and David Renwick is one of them, certainly. But uh, for most writers, it's, it's hard to get it right. I mean, some of the most talented writers, I'm not going to name names, but some of the most talented writers in the New Yorker history, fiction writers, needed a lot of help to get it right. They were, the stuff was there, but they needed to work with you. Well, I think it's, it isn't it? The process becomes, once the editor, the professional writer and an editor, the process is a three-way thing. There's you and the writer and there's the text. And you're looking at the text, which is presenting some sort of a problem of tone or, or sequence or, or uh, uh, I don't know, there are dozens of things that are not get quite untangled. And you're looking and looking at this together and trying to solve it. The most interesting person about this that I edited for years was John Updike who was a prolific fiction writer and wonderful fiction writer and intensely involved with the editorial process all the way. And he would be up, in his, up outside of Boston and I would be on the phone and we'd be about to close that evening or the next day and he would have the latest proof in front of him and we would be talking about... Uh, We'd been talking about something or a couple, two or three points in the stories that seemed difficult to that took something that happened. And he would have written out something else and he would read it aloud and say, which sounds better, which sounds better? And almost always, if there was a problem, he would rewrite at the last moment and it would be brilliant, it would be much better than it was before. <laughs> uh, but, but difficult when... Well, know. yeah, but he counted on me. and. Right. I counted on him because we were doing this hard thing, which was trying to get a piece of writing and make it better. Uh, a story I remember I've told before about this was about another writer I was very close to, the British writer V.S. Pritchett, and, uh, who was a sweet, wonderful man and one of the best short story writers in England and a great man of letters. And, uh, he always thanked, thanked you for the occasional rejection. He would thank you for the rejection, for the consideration. He sent us, in the, maybe in the late 60s, a long story about 14,000 words called The Fig Tree. And it was wonderful, but there was something wrong with it. There was some, there was some it was tangled in some way. And we couldn't quite get it right. We, I sent it back. And I send a lot of suggestions. Maybe if you do this, maybe if this person moves here or whatever, a page or two of suggestions. And he wrote me back and thanked me profusely. He said, I'm, thank you for your wonderful ideas. And about two months later, the story comes back, and he followed all my ideas, and the story was worse. <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> so you know it was a horrible <laughs> So I thanked him, I said, I was terribly sorry, and he thanked me again. And then about two months later, he came back, and he had changed a lot of different things, and it was perfect. Right. And we ran it, it became a famous story. Uh, <laughs> that's, I think that's a really uh, 
important story that you just told about <laughs> editing. I really do. Um, and young writers, of course, young writers are terrified if you start editing because it's something that your first story, right? Well, people and become enamored really nice, of their work. Short, wonderful piece of fiction, and they're sitting down with somebody who wants to maybe suggest that some of these sentences could be better or something could be taken out. And this is, every part of this is golden to them. This is my right. story. Right. They're terrified, and they think that they want to turn you into a New Yorker writer or something like that. And so it takes a while to, for the process of the fact that this is about, not about you, but about writing that is, is the center of it. No, I think what you said about it being a three-way conversation yeah. is really important. Yeah. That the text has, um, a, a, once it's created, it has yeah. its own being. Well, most of the New Yorker fiction editors were also writers themselves, so they, they knew this. And my fact editor, Jordan Bosford, was a wonderful editor, and he could make a cut. He could take something out of your text, and you wouldn't see what had happened. And said, so, what happened in here? And he said, it's better. It's just better. Don't worry about it. And you would see he had done some beautiful things, connected something to here to there. Uh, but then you also learn in your defense, if you're writing fact pieces, a long fact piece, you learn to write so at the end there's a space between parts of a story with a white line and a bold face initial for the next part. And you learn to lock the last sentence, of the previous one, to yeah. the part before the next part. Right. So they couldn't cut it and take it out. When they were <laughs> if it came out all, it came out locked together. So. <laughs> Very clever. <laughs> Are there, do you think that, um, do you think editing has changed? In oh, sure. Well, yes. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go about that. I mean, we don't do it the same way. I mean, things that, Everything about about uh, magazine journalism has changed. I mean, it's done. It's much more rapid, and it's much more centered on news. Uh, it's written more quickly, and a lot of it is just brilliant. But uh, there used to be so much attention given to the quality of a, of a piece. The editing of it was was lengthy. The fact checking of a long piece was lengthy, and. Uh, a lot of them weren't timely. We had at one point, Sean had, bit, had bought so many pieces of fact writing, many of them he know that he never intended to publish, but he didn't want to say no, so he would buy something and then not over a period it would become stale and not run. But we had enough, I once figured out, I used to do the layouts with, with another, the interior layouts. But... Uh, We've had enough extra material to publish without buying another thing for 10 months, which is enough for 30 issues, back, back copy. But yeah, it's changed. It's a lot. Magazine journalism is, well, it's a different, I don't want to. Well, no, I know. Well, let's, let me, can I, we stop for a minute? Sure, absolutely. Raj, you, you want a little, um, would you like a I little? I can't see what it is. I know, I'm about to announce it. I'm about to announce your food. <laughs> um, would you like a um, ap a little piece of apple turnover or cheese Danish? Or I'll have a tiny piece of Danish, I guess. That seems to be it. I hope that's what that is. Ruined my lunch. 
But one, a
utterly surprising. He had a story, there was an artist named Ernest Trover who had a series of paintings in the 70s, I think, called Falling Man, of a man falling on different things. He had a story called The Falling Dog, when a man's walking in the village and the falling dog hits him on the head and knocks him down. <laughs> Typical Bartholomew. And Sean and I loved Bartholomew. And Sean would, Sean said a couple of times, I don't know what it is, but I don't, it's felt sort of like poetry. I don't know what it is, but it's just wonderful. And we have to have it. We began publishing a lot of Bartholomew. And a lot of our readers were confused and irritated and put off by it because they didn't quite get it. And it wasn't a code or anything, it was just a different style of writing. And that included some people on The New Yorker, some of the other writers and editors said, who is this guy? And, but Sean knew what was different and brilliant and was ready to go. That happened over and over again. Uh, Bob Gratley came along. And, Sean had gotten old and the magazine was slowing down and filling up uh, the self-importance, perhaps. And Gottlieb was a, basically, a, he had been a great editor elsewhere, and Knopf and other places, and was a sort of a preservationist, but with a lighter heart than, lighter heart than Sean, who was elderly at the time. And then Tina Bryan arrived just in time. I think the magazine would have found it without her and changed it overnight changed the tone, the look of it. Um, and she had very little interest in fiction, but brought in a diff different fiction. She brought in a fiction editor from England and changed the tone for a while. Um, but for me, Tina was, she was, we got along fine. And she kept urging me to write about myself and to write about my family and to write about my own history. And I said, I don't want to do that. And she said, you've had a really different kind of a life than anybody else I wish you would try. And so the last 20 or 30 years, I've written a lot about myself and about my family and, and all because of Tina. Mm. And uh, I'll never, I can never thank her enough. Yeah, well, we can all thank her for that because well, of the writing is uh, amazing. It's, it's surprising. And, uh, but Tina's connection with fiction in the magazine was just glancing. And she was, I think she didn't read it very thoroughly or, or maybe not, sometimes not read it at all, but it was in there. She counted on people to do it. But uh, I've been very fortunate in this way to have people of that quality and to be surrounded with with editors, and some of them very young, of just brilliant and wonderful people, and changed the magazine. A writer named Veronica again came aboard in the 80s, I think, and highly opinionated, and wrote very funny, sharp, mysterious pieces, very angry, and a lot of slammed doors and tears with her, but she brought William Trevor aboard, who was a great writer we had not so far not not uh, not published and then I became Trevor's editor and you know here is here is a lifelong fabulous practitioner of short fiction uh, his his pieces were almost perfect were almost nothing needed to be done tiny little things and I became his editor and he 
counted on me, but the changes were minuscule. But the idea that there was somebody there that was doing this and asking him for this or that was became important to him. So, as I say, it's a private, private way of dealing with language. Yeah. So, were there? Um, are there? Do you keep up with fic- do you keep up with fiction today? I don't really. I've had the typical old man thing. I read less and less fiction. <laughs> So what what are you reading now? I'm not reading much because I'm gone blind. So I, I'm not. I can't read much. I've had I've had much degeneration. As of about six weeks ago, I can't read at all. So I'm I can't make out even large type of stuff on the time. So I'm more and more doing audible and yeah. But you're still writing, and you're well, I'm not writing much. I'm writing an occasional block, and I hope to keep doing that. What do you, do you, I mean, is there, do you try to write about certain things? Now? No, I don't try, I don't have a beat. I mean, it's just things that occur to me. Uh, but there's an audience out there. I mean, there's an audience, if I, there's an audience for my baseball writing, and it's about people send some word out if I've written some little thing about the Mets or something, but the Yankees. <laughs> And I've also written about, over the years, more serious things. I've written a lot of comment, first page, editorial stuff. Yep. And I've done so for, for many years. And I've written a lot of obituary stuff for, because so many writers and people that I've known have died. And, uh, and people pay attention. I wrote just a couple of weeks before the election in 1916. I wrote a blog, a posted a blog about Donald Trump that got a million hits in four days. So people are paying attention. Uh, well, you have- I've been very lucky because if the magazine era is over, it really is. I was talking the other day with a friend of mine, Gerald Marzarati, who was an editor, briefly at the New Yorker, but then at the Times. And uh, we were talking about how much fun we had and how entertaining stuff it was and uh, there was always laughter and conversation and intense feelings about the whole process of bringing out about publishing and all that has disappeared it's hard work now young people work very hard Hmm. often without real benefits Uh, New York has become a somber place there's no there's just just the sound of people working or trying trying to write and many people aren't in their offices they post from the home or where right. they are uh, what do you think I mean, yeah, editorial yeah. content of of newspapers and magazines is this, this becoming narrow and shorter and shorter and shorter the times New York Times just cut down from 16 floors to eight floors uh, Condé Nast has a lot of empty offices they're going to let go because the magazines they closed. Uh, it's a different time now. Um, well, do you think that, and you mentioned this, I think the social component of the magazine and newspaper and book publishing world, a lot of it revolved around spending physical time together. Yes, that's right. Um, exactly. And, and exactly. that you doesn't knew the happen. Writers. You knew the brothers. You right. saw them, saw them, and you dined with them and drank with them, and they became friends. Right. And Donald Bartholomew was here often. And when he came to parties here, he always sat in this chair, my chair, <laughs> <laughs> saying something or right. other. 
I want to go back to Harold Ross also, the first editor. The amazing thing about Ross, which has not much been much written about, here is this guy who didn't go to college, who was a guy from Colorado, a backcountry journalist, newspaper man from an early age, was the editor of Stars and Stripes in World War I. Uh, and surrounded with men and been very solicitous of women, didn't want people cursing in the presence of women and you think sort of idolized or idealized women. But he hired women and gave them very significant jobs at the New Yorker from the beginning, starting with my mother. But there were all sorts of, but Janet Flanner became, yeah. Janet Flanner became the best known Paris correspondent anywhere in the world. And during the war, Janet Flanner was reporting from Paris or outside Paris when she couldn't be there anymore. And the weekly correspondent from London was Molly Patterdown. Uh, the uh, great journalist, what's her name? I'm blank yet. Uh, I'll think about the map. He was in awe of these people and uh, gave, them, gave them endless space, and, and, uh, which was uh, in its day just. So remarkable, so remarkable. Yeah, because he was almost a Victorian. Range over so much stuff in the New Yorker: the art, the the art, the poetry, the the quality of the quality of the text, uh, fiction, uh, and this was intense, intense, uh, dedicated uh, involvement in in, in in writing well and making the New Yorker look good. Also, physically, the pages look beautiful. Uh, and that all came from Ross. Yeah, well, it's it, uh, it's 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 different. I mean, they still have they still have run around text around poetry and with different legs lines, which takes a lot of doing. And, uh, but that that side of Ross should be uh, should be remembered. Well, I'm glad you brought him up. Yeah. I think. Well, thanks for doing this. I hope I hope it hasn't been too much. No, um, no, this is a, it's a pleasure. I, I love, love Yeah, this has been great. Well, I hope we get to talk another time. Okay. Uh, but thank you for doing this, but, Roger Angel. Yeah, my, this my has pleasure. been and thank And thank Peggy Mormon for joining us, as she did. Okay. Uh, and your dog. What's the dog's name? My dog's name is Andy. Andy, named after your stepfather. That's, no, no. Uh, named after, actually, uh, uh, yes, yes, me, yes, yeah. But the, my his predecessor, Harry, everybody thought it was named for Harry Potter, but he was named for Harry Truman. Right. <laughs> I can tell you a story about how different New York used to be. Uh, 1954, 55, Truman had been out of office a couple of years. Mm-hmm. I'm coming back from lunch. I walk by the New York Times, and Harry Truman comes out the door. He'd been lunching with his son-in-law, Clipson Daniel. Came out the door unaccompanied. All by himself. Right. No secret service. No secret service. We start walking toward Times Square. Um, he's right beside me. And I said to myself, say something. And I said, we miss you, sir. And he starts talking to me. And we cross Broadway. We walk all the way to 6th Avenue in intense conversation. He knows all about the New Yorker as a reader and asked if I knew John Hersey. Uh, he said that the magazine arrived every week at his house. In, uh, outside Kansas City, but uh, his wife read it first, and then he got to read it second. 
And in the middle of this, coming toward me is Harding Bancroft, who was a friend of mine, who was a mem member of the editorial board of the New York Times, a significant guy. And he does a double take out of Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> and I look at him and smile and go on talking to Harry Truman. <laughs> and then Truman leaves me, and he's sixth Avenue, he decided to leave you. We shake hands, and he gets into a cab. And I go and I start to write this for the New York, a little piece about meeting Harry Truman on the street. And the phone rings, and it's Harding Bancroft. And he said, What are you doing? What are you and, what are you and Harry Truman doing? <laughs> and I said, Talking about this and that, and I hang up. <laughs> That's a great story. That is wonderful. <laughs> but up in New York, you used to see people all the time. You used to constantly see uh, Vladimir Horror was lived across the street on 94th Street from where my wife and I used to live. And you would see him wandering the neighborhood, this tall, striking figure with a bow tie with piano keys on the bow tie, in uh. case you didn't know who he was. <laughs> Actually, that reminds me of Robert Coates again, because one of the things that Coates did, he walked New York endlessly. Yeah. Uh, it was a, just an incredible yeah. Yeah. place. Well, that's what the great writer Sandy Fraser does now. Yeah. There's a great writer. Fabulous New Yorker writer. When, when I was a young boy, my father was a writer. He wrote for television in New York, television and, yeah. and theater. And my grandfather worked in New York. And when I, we would walk down... Fifth Avenue or Broadway, yeah. and people would come up to my father and shake his hand and say hello. And I thought, my father must be the most important person in New York. Yeah. But it was just because if you knew, if you lived in New York then, and you, you knew, knew people. you knew people, yeah. and you would see them on the street. Yeah. My my favorite story like this is that my my much younger son John Henry from a second marriage was about five years old and was learning to ride a bike. And my daughter, Callie, who was about 22, was here with him one day and was going down the street from, from going down 90th Street with him. And John Henry is soloing and he's, he's wavering up the sidewalk. <laughs> and at the end of the street, an old lady, all in black, turns the corner and here comes John Henry and she doesn't know what to do and dodges this way back and then grabs the handlebars. And Callie runs up and the woman says, dangerous, aren't they? Greta Garbo. <laughs> Greta Garbo. <laughs> That's a perfect New York story. I love that. <laughs> well, thank you, Roger. Oh, I pleasure. really appreciate it. And uh, okay. we hope we'll do this again sometime. Okay. Thank, you. thank you. This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. Today I've had the great pleasure of speaking with Roger Angel, a true American treasure. Thank you for listening. Thank you.